All right, everyone. It is 6.30, so go ahead and find a, a seat. There's plenty around. So I think it was back in 2016 when we first did our Christian Life Conference in August. It's kind of our, our kickoff on Wednesday nights for the ministry year. Uh, and we have explored a number of topics, but, but the topic we're going to explore this month uh, has been one that, that uh, we have been wanting to, to touch and to deal with uh, for a couple of Augusts now. And, um, and part of the holdup was just trying to, to get on Kelly Capic's schedule. Um, because um, really, I did not want us to begin to think about how um, the Bible and theology meets us in our suffering without the leadership of Kelly. Um, so as I mentioned to you over the last little bit, um, Kelly is a professor of theological studies at Covenant College, our denominational college. Um, he is a graduate of Wheaton Theological, uh, excuse me, Wheaton College, um, Reformed Theological Seminary, Orlando, where uh, when he was a student there, he was at St. Paul Presbyterian Church in Orlando, pastored by our own Mike Malone, uh, and then went and got a PhD at King's College in London, and um, and has taught at, at Covenant since 2001. Um, uh, as I mentioned, he's written a number of books, some of which we have for sale tonight. Um, but one of the things that um, I can say is he is, he's pastored me over the last couple of years. There is rarely a Sunday that goes by where when my alarm hits, gets, uh, goes off at uh, 545, 6 o'clock to begin to get ready for Sunday, where I don't have a text from Kelly um, encouraging me in the gospel and in this walk that Sarah and I have been going through in our own suffering. Uh, and so he, is, he has been the voice that I've wanted us to hear, and through him, ultimately, to hear the voice of our King Jesus um, through the working of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then Kelly's going to come and speak. So let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for really years of planning that have brought us to tonight. Um, and thank you that um, by your grace, you've brought Kelly to us tonight. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be poured out, poured out upon him, uh, that he might teach us and that we might respond, um, not just with our heads, but with our hearts as we go through the variety of, of suffering and storms that, that each of us have known in recent days. Lord, we pray that you would do your work among us and that you would lead us to yourself, that we might see that you are a loving and good father. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in welcoming Kelly Capic? Testing. Oh. I mean, it's fine. We could have just, you could have pretended like we're in the South and just pretended like you could have heard me for 40 minutes. That would have been a test of Christian patience. Um, I'm so excited to be with you. Uh, I mean, I'm excited. I don't know if you are once you realize what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's. It's the middle of the week, you had food, and all of a sudden you're like, we're going to talk about suffering? That's kind of, but, but there you are. So that's what we're going to do. Um, 
But I have known about this church for a long time, and it's, it's really fun to be with you um, and uh, pray for you guys and, and, and for your leadership, and very thankful for, for what I have seen and heard and know about happening here. Um, so let me give you a sense of, of the plan. Um, as we're going to kind of start this whole thing, I, as I was thinking through how, how we might do this tonight in light of coming talks, and I know some of the ones that are coming Decided, I, I want us to think through this idea of faith, hope, and love, and just to warn you as we get going so you don't panic later, the majority of time will be spent on faith, so don't feel like, what? Now we're going to spend that much time on hope and love? Uh, it'll make more sense, but we'll, I know our hard, hard deadline when it is, um, but I'm hoping to have at least a few minutes for, for Q&A, um, so if we can, so as we're going, just no, it would be great if you write down questions, hard questions, comments, whatever. Um, I, I tend to find that's very helpful for me and sometimes uh, for others. And I'll just give you a sense of what's going to happen. I, I'm going to give you the briefest of personal information just because it seems important given this topic. Then I, then I want to pray and then we'll jump in. Um, so with that said, um, my wife and I got married in 1993 and in 2009, we were married nine years before we had children, so our children were young at this point still, and in, it was 2008. Um, my wife was, a long story short, my wife was diagnosed with uh, cancer, a form of cancer that normally uh, hits women in their 70s and 80s, and she was in her early 30s at the time, or 30s, and... Um, so we wrestled with that, and again, to make a long story short, after several surgeries and stuff in 2000, the following year in 2009, she was eventually declared cancer-free, and we praised God, and we thought, that was brutal, that was really hard, we have the physical, emotional, other scars to show, but we've done it, we've gotten through it, and now let's move on, that was the hard thing God had for us. Um, and then in 2010, in the summer of 2010, she called me from the side of the road. She was, and I'll give you this information because it'll probably help. At the time, she was the U.S. president of MedAir, which is an international relief and rehabilitation organization. It's based in Switzerland. That's where the main office. So the U.S. branch is pretty small, and she was, but she was president of that, and it was right after the Haiti earthquake. And she was working really hard, crisis there, trying to help save family. you know, just important work. And while she was doing that, she, even though this was not exactly her work, she found about, out about some church planning opportunities. And so this morning, that morning, she had been having a breakfast with a bunch of local pastors in the PCA, telling them about this church planning opportunity in Haiti, and that maybe the PCA could do something like that. I only tell you that to say, the woman's doing God's work. Leave her alone. And on the way home from that breakfast, she called from the side of the road, and we had a manual stick shift. And she said, I don't know what's happening, but I don't think I can drive home. And from that day, that summer day, 2010 to this day, it is not an exaggeration, it is not hyperbolic to tell you, there has not been a single day where my wife has not dealt with pretty serious pain and fatigue. Some days are worse than other days, 
but there's never a day where she is without it. And again, to make a long story short, it took us six years to get through all the way to the Mayo Clinic to figure it out, and she has a soft tissue connective disorder on the one hand, and she has a thing called urethromyalgia, or man-on-fire disease, on the other. I don't need to give you any more information. I just want you to know that like many of you, suffering is not hypothetical to us. And there's no one in this room who hasn't been touched by various forms of suffering, whether it's abuse, physical pain, deep wounds from relationships, early unexpected death. So this is not hypothetical for us. And so I want to be honest tonight, and I want us to think through what it means to be a community that tries to embody the love of Christ and faithfulness in the midst of suffering realities. So let's pray. Father, um, I know some people here, but I don't know most of them. But I know that there are stories of deep pain. And there are hurts, and there are questions, and there are frustrations. Some are troubled by your apparent absence. Some have tried to tell the best story they know about it, but are still wondering. Others have tasted deeply of your kindness, but also are hurting. We just ask that by your Spirit, you would do something beautiful and that you would bring some encouragement and hope both to those who hear and to the one who speaks. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So, some of you remember um, Stephen Crane. You probably remember him because you're teaching... Stephen Crane wrote, um, uh, was it Red Badge of Courage? That might help you. But he, he not a Christian guy, but he, he early, um, was it late 19th century or whatever, but he also wrote poems. So I want to read... I'm very proud of myself for memorizing this poem, so I just want to impress you, right? You can learn it too. Here is the poem. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. And the universe replied, The fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. Did you catch that? A man said to the universe, sir, I exist. And the universe replied, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. Now that's a troubling thing, but this is not a Christian. You're like, oh. But I bring that up because I actually think it's way harder, in a sense, for those of us who confess the personal God of Abraham, Isaac, Matthew, and Mary. Because we don't just bring our fears to a vague universe. What do we do when we, if we're honest, have fears about divine indifference, rejection, and judgment? De Horta Sola wrote this famous book on suffering, and she's, she's not the most orthodox Christian, as you'll see here in a minute, and it's, this was in the 70s, but her questions were way more interesting than her answers. And she was upset with many of us in the Orthodox theological tradition, and particularly people like Calvin. She accused us 
of basically viewing suffering as a kind of, as she called it, theological sadism or a masochistic approach. Let me just read you this quote from her. She's describing what she thinks is what we believe. Suffering is there to break our pride. And some of this you're like, okay. Suffering is there to break our pride, to demonstrate our powerlessness, to exploit our dependency. And now watch this. Affliction has the intention of bringing us back to a God. And here's where she sticks in the knife. Affliction has the intention of bringing us back to a God who only becomes great when he makes us small. Is that what we think about God? Is our God so insecure that he's got to make us really small in order for him to be great? Is that how we think about it? Let's turn to someone within our tradition. There's a Puritan named John Owen in the 17th century. Owen describes what he called hard thoughts about God. He called it temptations to have hard thoughts about God. And when he's talking about having hard thoughts, he doesn't mean like questions of like, why God and how is this happening? And this is very, you know, those kind of questions. Owen talks about these hard thoughts as a quote-unquote temptation because they're hard thoughts because we tend to think of God as cruel. Whether, whether first, you know, fostered through childhood, painful childhood experiences, maybe heavy-handed preaching, maybe something else, but many of us think of God in very deeply problematic ways. When suffering increases for us, we're often plagued by distorted images of God. That if we're honest, our view of God starts to almost like God's demonic, like he's just playing games. As if he's just tyrannical. Owen calls these hard thoughts because when you and I tend to think of God as just a mad scientist playing a game, as cruel, as indifferent, as just always angry, then Owen understood that temptation in our struggle keeps us from going to the very one who alone can be the anchor of our faith, hope, and love. Who alone can bring us comfort. To think, as Owen says, he says we're apt to have very hard thoughts of him, to think God is always angry, yea, implacable, that it is not for poor creatures to draw near to him. And Owen's point is not that God can't, Sometimes we, it's very interesting. We treat God like we need to protect him. You know, it's kind of like a teenager who went and, and was drinking and something bad happened and they need to tell their parents, this is bad. But what's interesting is you can imagine where they actually maybe have a pretty good relationship with their parents and they don't want to tell their parents not just because they don't want to get in trouble, but actually they don't want to hurt their parents. They're trying to kind of protect their parents from the bad stuff. If I ask us, does God know everything, we all, yes, he does, he's God. Omni, omni, omni. But I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, if you're like me, we're constantly protecting God. Not saying the things that we really think, that we fear, that are troubling us. As if God cannot handle our questions. Listen, I'm a parent, other parents. Maybe you as a parent or as a grandparent panic when your kids or other people you know are struggling with their faith. God's not panicked. 
God can handle these things. So what I want to do now, in light of just kind of getting us to feel some of this, is I want to do an extended reflection on faith, hope, and love, especially on faith, and I want to use stories, particularly from the great reformer Martin Luther, to help us maybe reimagine or, or better understand faith. Martin Luther in the 16th century, you know, here I stand, he was uh, all about faith alone and Christ alone, very important to us. Luther himself had a tremendous amount to say, particularly in personal letters, about sickness. And Luther understood in the 16th century, and it's still true in our day, that when, when physical difficulties or emotional abuse kind of things happen, that can't just easily be separated from spiritual challenges. It's not easy to distinguish those two and to know where one starts and the other begins, but they come together. And when you're in pain, think about having a toothache, your life gets super narrow, right? How well can you concentrate if you've got a really bad toothache? How well can you love your neighbor when your toothache is killing you? And amid such difficult seasons of life, one of the things that you'll see for Luther is he understood that when the doubt comes in, it obscures our vision of who God is. Now, I won't take you through all of Luther's own personal physical ailments, but there were a lot. But I want to tell you some things. One time, for example, when things were so severe and he thought he was on the verge of death, it frightened not only himself, but his wife and his friends. And stumbling through this, he saw it as a spiritual challenge, and he, he basically started to talk about, it, it's like a, you know, when everything's fine, you can debate who's important. But when you're on a ship like a sailor, and the boat looks like it's going down, that's where we get this all-hands-on-deck idea. When there's a crisis, you need all-hands-on-deck. Luther understood that in terms of faith. So, in 1527, he wrote Melanchthon, his, his dear friend. And he explained how in this letter, for a full week, he had been terribly ill. And, and this is Luther's language, he had been, quote, in death and in hell. And he senses his deep vulnerability. Listen to Luther's words. I almost lost Christ in the waves and blasts of despair and blasphemy against God. Now before I go on, you're like, Luther? Blasphemy against God. What he means by blasphemy is what, what Owen's talking about. Blasphemy is saying that God is not good. Blasphemy is saying that God is unconcerned. Blasphemy is saying God acts like the demons, like a devil. And then he goes on, but God was moved, watch this, by the prayers of the saints, not his own, and began to take pity on me and rescued my soul from the lowest hell, unquote. I just want you to start to see for him the importance of community in the midst of suffering. Now, and he talks about being rescued. Let me give you another letter. Later, he was writing to a guy named Nicholas Hausman on a different occasion, and you may know in the 16th century, the plague was going through at different seasons. It's come through for a while, and it disappeared, and it come through for a while. And it had come to his, um, into his area. 
and at least three times it had hit his household. And his son Hans had been on the verge of death, malnourished and ill. And in this setting, this was not Luther's own sickness, not his own suffering, but someone he deeply loved, his very son. And Luther writes that he knew this was, quote-unquote, Christ's will, so he recognizes that. But Luther, the great reformer, admits that he is struggling with what he called restlessness, and faint-heartedness. He's deeply restless. He's faint-hearted. And then he implores Hausman in this letter. He's writing his friend. And he asks for prayers, but listen to what he asks him to pray for. It's not about healings. It's not against healings, but he asks him to pray, quote, that my faith fail not. That my faith fail not. Luther never doubted the significance of faith. But it sometimes surprises people who don't know his work. He also understood how incredibly fragile faith is. I have a, a, a friend who's a retired theologian who all his life struggled with depression. He told me one time, he said, Kelly, every morning I wake up an atheist. And by about nine in the morning, I'm a monotheist. And on a good day by noon, I'm a Christian. Now maybe that sounds crazy to you. But for a lot of us, that actually, you kind of see what he's saying, right? There's something to that. And Luther understood this underlying battle was a battle of faith. David Steinmetz, a leading Luther scholar, said the fundamental, listen to this, the central problem for Luther remains the problem of God. It actually is God. (laughs) What he means by that is Luther's always wrestling with the mercy and compassion of God and God's hiddenness. We affirm God is merciful and compassionate, and then we experience things that don't seem very compassionate or good, because they're not. Just so you know, when wickedness happens to you, if you're abused, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you need to call that a good story. That's making a lie of the brokenness of this world. God is good. All the brokenness is not good. And, and as, as as Luther's always wrestling, is God really loving? Does God really welcome someone like me into his presence? Do I worship him or just fear him? As one author writes, Luther lived between God and the devil. I say that because that may not be your impression of Martin Luther the great center of the Reformation. But when he suffered from serious sickness, the threefold taunt of sin, death, and the devil was always nearby. And the ache of disease, and this is a longer conversation, but interestingly enough, the ache of disease and sickness and weakness tends to often intensify our awareness of sin in ourselves and others. It's a longer conversation, but just an aside, I want to be clear. I'm not saying when we're suffering from sickness, weakness, sin, that means we're worse sinners. It's just we often become, in our vulnerability and weakness, we can't pretend anymore, and we start to see just how broken the world is, and we are ourselves. We can't pretend anymore, and that then means you become more vulnerable to what 
people trying to describe Luther's experiences call it spiritual depression. So, one other story from Luther. Well, two other. This one time it was horrendous, and his body seized up as Justice Jonas, who was there, wrote, wrote about it later that night. His, his, his body seized up. He was frighteningly faint. And when Justice was there, Luther asked Justice to throw cold water on him. And, and also he began to fervently pray. And Luther, during this time, it was a lot of mixture of the Lord's Prayer and praying the Psalms. But mostly, Luther was just weak, and friends started to gather And we know what Luther said, but we don't know what he did. But the way I envision his words, we know he said this, one by one, please pray for me. And I just envision him grabbing. If you know Luther, he doesn't do anything kind of calmly. This is a Please pray for me. Please pray for me. And if you understand Luther, he's not primarily just praying that I will physically get better. He's praying that he's being tempted to think badly about God. Tempted to believe that God is indifferent or cruel. Luther doesn't die. And the next day when he describes the event as things seem to ease, he said, basically he said, you couldn't easily separate the physical and the spiritual attack or difficulty. And that is often what it's like. This is the last one, I think. Ger- Gerhold Vilskip, you don't care, but in 1528. <laughs> maybe Lucas does, he's writing notes, probably. <laughs> um, he, he's writing in 1528, and he's telling Vilskip all, about all this physical stuff he's dealt with, even since he was young. But he said, now things are at their worst. Now listen to the great reformer. Remember 1517, the whole, you know, Wittenberg door nailing on that. We're now, that's 1517. We're now 1528. This is a mature Luther, all about justification by faith alone. And Luther says this, quote, so far, in his weakness, so far Christ has triumphed. But he holds me by a very slender thread. And then listen to these words as he requests their prayers. I have saved others. Myself I cannot save. I want to explain what he means by that. Because you might be like, he didn't save himself, God saved him. No, this is Luther. He knows what he's talking about. I saved others, myself I cannot save. So I want to tell you something that many of you probably know from your own experience. So I'm a theologian. Let me tell you from my perspective. I'm a theologian. I do pastoral care and ministry, but I, in a lot of my ministry is to students. And sometimes I'm, and I have a student, and I'm trying to care for them, and I'm telling them, and I believe it with all my heart, I'm telling them about God's love, about the radical nature of God's grace and his kindness and tenderness, and I mean from the depths of my soul, I mean every word I'm telling that kid. But the strangest things happen. When I try and tell that to myself, it means nothing. You need to know this about your pastors, elders, but actually about most of us. There's something very interesting, and, and that doesn't mean we're not serious when we're telling others about grace, but one of the ways the gospel works 
I know this whole idea of preach the gospel to yourself. I'm not against that. I think that can help. But the problem is I don't believe myself. And I don't know you guys, but a lot of you are schmucks and you don't believe yourselves either. Right? You look in the mirror and you're like, I'm just being soft on myself. Or all you see are your sins. And it takes someone else. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about in the 20th century, early 20th century, there's something powerful about having a sister or brother in Christ who sees you in your junk, who sees you, your sin and your weakness and suffering and looks at you and brings the name of Christ. Luther understood, I saved others in the sense of I brought them Christ. I can't save myself. We need each other. And in this strong individualism of our culture, I, love, I think we should read our Bibles alone. I think we should pray alone. But when that is the whole basis of our spirituality, it is insufficient when the doubts come, when the pain comes, when the vulnerability is thick. Luther, and when he says saved, listen, he wants to be saved from blasphemy, from doubt, from distrusting his loving Father. He understood the way the body of Christ needed to work. The body is meant to work together. So the last thought on faith. Together as the body of Christ, only together can worries about divine apathy and judgment and abandonment, together those worries can be honestly answered. Alone, the flame of faith diminishes. But in community, faith can illumine the night. But we cannot do it alone, especially long term. I told you that would be the longest. Let's talk about hope. Hope. Christian faith is not simply, you know, what do we mean by faith? When we're calling people to faith, are we just saying, like, you need to believe in God? It's so interesting. Now, I'm talking about hope, but what? Here is John Calvin's definition of faith, or of faith, which has everything to do with hope. Listen to this amazing definition. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. Founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let me help you understand what Calvin just said, because it's awesome. It's insightful. (laughs) Faith is not believing that there's a God. That's kinderspiel. That's not hard. I know it's kind of cool to be an atheist these days, but that's not hard. That's not what we're calling people to as Christians. Calvin understood. You want to know what Christian faith is? It's super hard. It is believing that God is benevolent toward us. That may not seem hard depending on your circumstance, but if you're a Christian in the Ukraine right now and you hear bombs landing near you, if you've been sexually abused, that's hard. When you're materially poor and constantly are wondering what's going to happen, that's really hard. It's hard to believe that God is benevolent toward us. And hope which nourishes faith, plays a key role here. No, and this is what's so key. 
What was brilliant about what Calvin said is faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence. He's a good theologian. He doesn't say, you need to be sure that God is benevolent to you. So you know how you're going to get sure? Look around and examine your life. Are things going well? How stable is that? An accident and it's gone. Calvin said, we have a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. How? Through the Son and the Spirit. If you want to know what God thinks about you and your sin and suffering, of abuse you've suffered, do not just end up with some philosophical discussion of the sovereignty of God. I, let me tell you, do you know the, most, the clearest manifestation of the sovereignty of God? It's Jesus hanging on a cross, weeping and bleeding. That doesn't look sovereign, does it? That is profound, divine solidarity with us in our brokenness. It's not merely a sympathetic, empathetic deity, because this God enters in, dies, and rises. But don't miss, it's not less. The only way you'll grow convinced and stronger in your confidence of God's kindness is not by empirical observation. It's by gazing on the crucified and risen King. It's confident in His Spirit. Now, faith. I want to I I summarize what I've said so far. Because if you can get this, and you haven't paid any attention, so if you haven't paid attention, now's the time. Because I want you to get these two things. I want you to understand what I'm saying, even if it upsets you. What I mean by faith, I mean these are community sport things. What I mean by that is faith is we represent one another to God. So in faith, when a sister or a brother is suffering, whether it's in doubt, whether it's in physical pain, whether they are just wrestling... We represent them to God by our prayers, by our entering in, and hope. So in that way, we speak to God for our beloved friends, and hope is us speaking for God to them. When you're in tremendous amounts of pain and difficulty and suffering, it actually gets very difficult to receive hope. One of the only ways you can receive it, it becomes palatable, is when we embody it to one another. Simply, I'm not against, I love the scriptures, they're authoritative. I'm not against telling people a Bible verse. But a dispassionately given Bible verse, you know, you know there's a sense in which you could take this, take this the right way, okay? And if you're mad, take it out on Sean. But <laughs> I get to leave tomorrow, it's fine. But there's a sense we need to be the verse. Simply telling people about God's love, which is good and appropriate with a verse. In some ways, for them to be able to receive and believe that verse, we have to embody it. And sometimes that looks like just being quiet and being present. If they're struggling, even if they don't articulate it, thinking God is cruel, God is indifferent, God is judging... One of the ways you and I help them not think that is to be in their presence and not be cruel, not be asking for quick solutions, not be judging. 
And as God's love through us by His Spirit moves to those people, it becomes easier for them to start believing more and more about the gospel. And this isn't for new Christians. This is for all of us. Hope is not achieved through the power of positive thinking, but in the promises of word and sacrament. And this is where both particularity and community meet. The Psalms, if you don't regularly read the Psalms, you know, listen, we're among friends. I know there's some of you who probably haven't really prayed in a long time. If you're finding it difficult to pray, pray a psalm a day. And one of the things, if you've never done that before, it'll start out great. And it won't get long where you're all of a sudden going to be praying and you're going to like, this is inappropriate. It, 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 just trust me, you're like, oh, Dr. Cabot, that's the word of God. Yeah, pray it. You're going to be saying like, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why are my enemies? You're like, no, we don't talk to God that way. Apparently we do. This is the prayer book of the church and of Israel. We praise God, but 35 to 40% of the Psalms are laments, aches, questions, struggles, frustrations. Part of what's so amazing about the Psalms is they openly move between the glories of hope and the depths of despair. And what's key is they neither belittle the pain the Psalms do not belittle pain, and they do not trivialize promises. And for whatever reason, as American evangelicals, we tend to do both. We trivialize promises, and we belittle pain. And that works until it doesn't. And then we actually need the Word of God. Biblical hope grows out of confidence in God's redemptive actions, His trustworthy presence, but that hope can be very hard to muster when you're so physically, emotionally, relationally weak. And it takes others to help embody and bring that hope to us. Christ is risen, risen indeed. Let's talk about love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. To the one suffering, the body of Christ offers faith. We as a community offer faith, graciously supplying needed gospel hope. But it is interesting in 1 Corinthians, you have faith, hope, and love. And what does it say? Greatest of these is love. Greatest of these is love. And there is a sense in which Paul, it's a longer conversation, but Paul is saying love helps you reshape and understand what we even mean by faith and hope. Because great gifts can be used for ill. In this context, what I mean by that is faith without love, faith without love can actually turn abusive. And I'm sorry I used some of these examples because I know it can trigger, but these are things I've seen and heard and watched. But it's like, it's like sending someone who's been abused, saying, we believe God's going to show up. You send them into a situation without any protection. That is faith without love. And it's destructive. And I've seen people leave the faith because of the consequences of it. 
belittling the struggling saint by substituting impersonal axioms for heartfelt prayers. Likewise, hope, hope devoid of love, can devolve into insensitive forms of activism and arrogance. Calling people to hope, but without love, it just becomes activism. It replaces empathetic grace with cheap platitudes and impersonal vision. It's, it's always interesting. If someone's never suffered and they're dealing with someone who is suffering, how easy the cliches come. But when people have suffered a lot, you get them on the wrong day and you give them one of those cliches, you may get punched in the face. And I'm not so sure God's going to be mad about that. It's interesting. I mean, if I step aside, it doesn't count toward my time, right? <laughs> so I have a colleague whose PhD is in Job. And I love to pastor people like that and pastors with this question. How in the world do you preach Job? It's the word of God. Okay. But here's what's interesting about Job, right? So Proverbs is conventional wisdom. And Job is unconventional wisdom. Proverbs says, do this, this will happen. It's basically true, except not always true. And Job is unconventional wisdom. And this is the reason why I don't know how you preach Job, at least like when we often do just little chunks at a time, because Job's friends will say things that are true, but they're untrue because they're saying them. Do you get what I mean by that? You can take a truth and make it an untruth because of the context and how you're doing it. It's a fascinating challenge. We can't reduce these things to an impersonal vision of what must be done. They must come, faith and hope must come in the context of love, must be applied in love. Here's a quote from Nicholas Walterstorff. He lost his, he's a Christian, he lost his son um, in his 20s. Listen to what he wrote. Suffering is a mystery as deep as any in our existence. It is not, of course, a mystery whose reality some doubt. Suffering keeps its face hid from each while making itself known to all. We all, we are one in suffering. Some are wealthy, some are bright, some athletic, some admired, but we all suffer for we all prize and love. And in this present existence of ours, prizing and loving yield suffering. Listen to what he says. Love in our world is a suffering love. This said Jesus is the command of the Holy One. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in commanding us to love, God invites us to what? To suffer. C.S. Lewis talks about, like, I, here's free advice. I can help, you know, some of you have been burned by the church, by spouses, by other people. Free advice, I can help you never get your heart broken again. It's just never love again. I deal with college students. Many of them want this wonderful marriage, but do not want the risk to get there. But you can't get there without the risk of having your heart broken. Right? You love anything and it's a risk. Because now when it hurts, you hurt. When it's weak, you're weak. 
In God's economy, God expresses his love and extends his comfort normally through the agency of his people. As Paul describes the church, he says there's no division in the body. The members may care for, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. But when faith and hope are detached from love, they're denied their power and efficacy. Last quote from Luther, and then we're about to wrap up. When we feel pain, when we suffer, when we die, let us turn to this, firmly believing and certain that it is not we alone, but Christ and his church who are in pain and suffering and dying with us. Do people feel like we feel their pain? I don't mean in a cheap way. But are they safe in our presence to actually tell us what's going on? I don't think you have to tell everybody. I don't think you've got to get up in front of the church and tell everybody. But we need pockets of shalom. A lot of them, because there need to be different pockets for different people. Pockets of peace. If we had more time, there are three biblical, but I want to tell you these because I want to encourage you to think on them. There are three biblical images when you're dealing with suffering over long periods of time, I would encourage you to be thinking about. Cross, resurrection, and feast. Each of those are important, and they're all different. Cross, resurrection, and feast, the great feast that is to come that we get a taste of in the Lord's Supper. But rather than take you through all that I've written about that, I'm going to give you one quote, and this is from my wife. Because when I wrote on those three things and she read it in the manuscript, on the side, she wrote this, just kind of scribbled it. And I'm like, okay, that's better than everything I've written. You need to put that in here. So this is what Tabitha wrote. Let's see if I can. Suffering can be like a famine. Suffering can be like a famine, a famine of comfort and peace, a famine of joy and health, a famine of community and self-worth. And to this famine, Christ offers the feast of himself. We don't have to deny the difficulty, but that longing you have it's Christ alone who, who can meet you in the famine. But it is a feast and we need one another to serve one another that we can partake. So in conclusion, when we have hard thoughts about God, especially amid suffering, I do think the community of faith can really help us. Others can speak to God for us by their faith and prayers when we find it difficult, if not impossible, to speak to God ourselves. And these saints can speak to us for God when we by ourselves find hope elusive. Faith and hope become powerful and healing when they're brought to us through genuine love. Beloved, Christ has died, but Christ is risen, and he will come again. Let me pray, and then we got like seven minutes. Let's pray. God, you are good. 
You're good all the way down. There's no part of you that's not good. But we also confess that this world and its rebellion and brokenness, including the cosmos, is not all good. We sin. We hurt one another. We hurt ourselves, but also our bodies. Even the earth cries out and longs for healing. It's hard for us to make sense of Paul's words that Christ, in all things, you are preeminent. And you will reconcile all things, heaven and earth, invisible and visible. And in our bodies, we often sense the great longing for that reconciliation. I pray for this community that you would give them the courage of faith. That you would give them the perseverance of hope. And that you would give them the compassion of love. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Are you guys up for six or seven minutes? There's a mic if you want to. Sorry to do that to you. You probably don't normally have that right after an evening talk. But any thoughts or questions or concerns? Maybe a potential misunderstanding? So um, in light of your last piece... From Tabitha, yeah. Um, how does that speak to the first piece that was the atheist cynic comment? So, how do you connect Christ? How do you connect her sense of famine with that? The universe is unconcerned. The idea that the idea that lady said that God oh about God and Calvin and yeah you know, yeah. So I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. I think this is a particular temptation in our Reformed communities. I'm a Reformed theologian. I believe in God's sovereignty, radical sovereignty. He's in control. But one of the strangest things happens once you start to learn about sovereignty of God in the Bible or in Reformed theology, all of a sudden all these other things disappear from your Bible. Where people are like, God is sovereign. And especially if, you've, if you're kind of come to reform tradition from something else, this is the key that opens up everything. But the problem is you take a good thing and you make it, it flattens out everything else. So all of a sudden it's like, God is sovereign. And all of a sudden people, strangely, find it difficult to read the Bible in the sense of God is constantly saying, why did you do that? Oh, that's really bad. That's not good. I don't like that. That's all in the same Bible. And we tend to pick between God is sovereign or people are responsible. Or this world, and the Bible's like, yes. And so part of, part of what we must do is, I just think, honestly, as Christians, we're constantly tempted to lie. We're tempted to lie in our circles about just how messed up the world. I mean, we like talking about sin, but when you actually start talking about our lives, not hypothetical sin, not everyone's just a sinner, but like real brokenness and the brokenness of the world, it's really difficult. It gets very touchy for us. And so we, we start, for whatever reason, to, to paint a plastic view of the world. And it's not, there's really hard. So I think we're tempted to lie about how really difficult the world is. And then we're tempted to lie about how good God is. God is like super good. There's no badness in him. He's holy. He's just, and he's love. There's no part of him in it. So I, I do think you've got others who are tempted to lie about that. And we've got to hold that God is love. And so answer, sorry, the answer to Sola's 
question about do you just have a, this God who's like doing a puppet is, the only answer is Christ. In his, this radical solidarity where God in Christ, God is not just a scientist, God enters in, the creator becomes creature. This idea that Hebrews, you know, that we have a sympathetic high priest. Have you ever thought about this? Um, see, it's like you put meat in front of a dog, and I'm I'm going to get a... So. But I'll try and stop up at this. We'll get a, have you ever thought about this? Like, God knows everything, right? Say yes. Okay, thank you. God knows everything. So I don't get why it's a big deal in Hebrews where it's like, Jesus, we have a sympathetic high priest. Like, God already knew everything, right? Here's what's fascinating. God does know everything. And he knows everything as God. And then what the triune God does is the triune creator, the Father sends the Son and the power of the Spirit so that God also now becomes human. So now, God doesn't just know everything. He knows it from the human side. You believe that? Like, is, I mean, if I say, is Jesus human? We're like, yeah, he's human. Really, do you believe that? I don't think this room has any difficulty believing Jesus is divine. I'm pretty sure a lot of us struggle with him being really human. And you will, that becomes a test case when you're dealing with pain and suffering. Because that will inform how you answer De Horte's question. Because if Jesus is really none other than God in all of the fullness of being human he himself is without sin but he's in a sinful world which then even affected his body that's powerful and i do think it's a very different picture of god than what she's presenting we got one more that's all right brave souls oh there's one So can you talk about um, what difference it makes to Jesus on the cross to have John and Mary and some of his companions there with him while he's mm. in the middle of feeling, having been, had God turn his back on him? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And it is... It's another one of those great questions where because we so quickly pass over the real human temptations and struggles, we miss the humanity. Jesus really does have friends that don't just rely on him, but there is this mutual relationship. Communion is mutual. And once you understand that, then that's part of the gravity of like Peter's denial is these relationships are starting to break and fracture. But I do think that there is, notice Jesus is concerned for his mom, even from the cross. He's connected. I do think you do get this sense of, of their attempts to comfort, but also their confusion and their struggle. Um, and that, I mean, that is worth, it's interesting, uh, the, the only, and I know I've got to end, it's a hard stop, but put it this way, at the end of, is it Matthew's gospel? It said, it, it's his post-resurrection. And it talks about how they worshipped him and then says, but some didn't believe. 
And you're like, how is that possible? Right? So, I, well, mm, I'd like to talk all about this, but put it this way. When we talk about, quote, unquote, doubting Thomas, no, that's too much. I'm going to have to. So, yeah, and let, let's just say oh, the Bible's so much better than we realize. So, anyways, let, let me pray one more time, and I'll let you go. So, it's all right. It's a big church. You can solve that. Let me pray. Father, thanks for your kindness. Um, I pray that you would use your Bible, use your word to strengthen us, to challenge us, to heal us by your spirit. Give us courage to live together, not alone. In Christ's name, amen. Thank would you, you join me in thanking Kelly?